can't judge a person and it turns out you didn't have the whole story? Ever learn there was a lot more to that story than you first realized? I'm Kimberly. And I'm Rebecca. Join us as we separate the little lies from the big reputations. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back, everybody. I just put a gummy peach ring in my mouth as soon as Rebecca clapped her hands and I was like, oh no. So <laughs> that's all right. It's this is real. ASMR. It's authentic. <laughs> peach rings. One of my sisters loves peach rings. I forget that's which Ashley. one now. I bet it's Joe. It's either Jill or Brooke. But well, I think Brooke, is, Brooke likes Brooke likes circus peanuts, so it's probably Ooh, Jill. Oh, me too. I haven't had circus peanuts in years though. Like I like they're just not right. Candy. It's not right that I haven't had it in years, or it's not right that they just melt in your mouth like some weirdness. Yeah, it's like yeah, space I don't, I don't know what cream. they are. <laughs> yeah, I have no clue what they are. It, it doesn't make sense. They don't even have like a real taste. It's just like I mean, I haven't had it in forever. They just like melt in your mouth, kind of right? Yeah, they do, but like <laughs> they just dissolve, and I think they are kind of orangey. I don't know. Yeah, I mean they're uh, orange colored, but I don't know yeah, what but the I don't, flavor. I can't remember what the flavor is like. I that's it's been forever. If you're enjoying circus penis while you're listening to this, please let us know. Is that one of those like psychological things? Like because it looks orange, it tastes orange in your mind. You know what I mean? Like like if it's red, you're just like, oh, this tastes like red. But is it cherry? Is it raspberry? Is it strawberry? It's strawberry? Yeah, yeah. I think so because like someone had a like a watermelon margarita. And I was like, oh, is that a strawberry margarita? And they're like, no, it's watermelon. And I was like, oh, I just automatically assumed. Like I taste, I took a tiny sip of it and it was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is strawberry. And they were like, no, like dummy, it's watermelon. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess the red just led me to believe that it'd be strawberry. It's like Wine Wednesday when we scrapbook. So we go to a scrapbooking group and uh, in the summers we drink wine with with our scrapbooking and and we're always asked like, oh, what is, what is the flavor? What, what do you taste here? What do you smell here? And I'm just like, wine <laughs> grapes <laughs> yeah you're you're fun to be around like we're we're trying to like actually sort it out and be like mm, be like little wine tasters like what does this smell like and i'm like i smell stone fruit i smell apricot and she's over here like wine smells like wine <laughs> i mean the ones that jump out to me are like the grapefruity ones i feel like those like citrus is always like the strongest one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but they're and like sarah is always like charcoal herbaceous and i'm like whoa <laughs> whoa how do you know all of this she's like, a professional I, she is a professional but i'm just like i'm just gonna drink it now and it tastes great there's no segue i was gonna be like speaking of tasting great <laughs> no, no. tastes great less filling no <laughs> what was that what was that from that was some ad i have to google it <laughs> Tastes great, less filling. It's probably some diet nonsense. Miller Light. Miller Light. There we go. Miller, Miller Light. Light. <laughs> it came up real quick too. <laughs> wow, this is like the way some ads just stick with your head no matter what. Yeah, yeah. I don't even. I don't think I've ever had a Miller Light. I like Miller High Life. That's okay. like one of the best, the champagne of beers, if you will. Um, <laughs> oh my god, it says Baby Boomer Memory Lane. Less filling, tastes great. Oh, like wow. So now I'm a boomer. <laughs> now you're just an old person. You know what? I think that that actually ties into everyone just forgets about Gen X because everyone's like, oh, if you're not a millennial, then you're a yeah. boomer. And I'm like, wait, wait, there's a whole bunch of us in between. <laughs> you deserve to uh, be. No. <laughs> it's more like we're good with like flying under the radar. <laughs> I got, yeah, like, don't think about us too much. Leave us right. alone. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Let's... um. Let's All of get these into are horrible something. segues. These are terrible segues. Well, okay. Let's talk about this because today is September 16th and we just are recording an episode. Uh, we're doing a bunch of episodes today, but today's recording, the one that you're listening to at the moment, mm-hmm. is was we chose it because uh, Hispanic Heritage Month or Latinx Heritage Month just started on September 15th. 
Yep, and it goes all the way until October 15th. So you might be like, okay, why? That's weird. Why is it spread across two months? So basically, it's to cover all the important dates. So September 15th was chosen as the kickoff date since it coincides with the Independence Day celebration of five countries, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. Followed by Mexico's Independence Day on September 16th, Chile's on the 18th, and Belize on the 21st. Yeah, and another important day that falls within this 30-day period is Dia de la Raza, or um, Indigenous Peoples Day, which is celebrated in Mexico on October 12th and is celebrated here in the U.S. I think this year it's on the 9th? So how I plan on celebrating... National Hispanic Heritage Month is uh, with two of my favorite things, which is food and film. Um, so I'm going to like go eat at local Latin-owned restaurants. You can easily find those. You can just Google it, Latin-owned restaurants near me, and you will find it, hopefully, if you live in a place that is cool. I don't know yeah. if you live like in Kansas, if you're going to find any. Sorry, Kansas. Um, there's a uh, look at your face. You're well, no, because I was thinking, Kansas. I was wondering if there's like um, like a migrant population there that may be settled because I think... Oh, like yeah, a, hit the wrong state. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but honestly, a lot of states. So this is something that um, I think a lot of times we think about like Latina people living in New York, in Miami, Chicago, mm-hmm. California, Texas... But, like, there's a huge, like, uh, Mexican-American population, for example, in North Carolina. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, like, it's, it's a little more widespread than I think traditionally we've, we've thought of. And, and so, that I, I'm, like, I don't know the answer about Kansas, but I was, like, huh, I wonder. <laughs> what? And then my brain started going, like, what grows in Kansas? I don't know. <laughs> Corn? Uh, Winchesters? Sweet Winchesters. <laughs> All right. We'll grow some Winchesters. Love it. That was uh, awesome. If you don't get that joke, I feel sorry for you. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I hope there is Latin opportunities and communities in Kansas now that I think about it. I feel like this is going to be my uh, one o'clock in the morning like deep dive is just seeing like what's going on in like Kansas City. Yes. Um, so there's also some things you can watch. Uh, there's a documentary on Disney Plus called Miha, directed by Isabel Castro, and it follows two daughters of undocumented immigrants from Mexico navigating their careers in the music industry. So it was at Sundance last year, and it's like really moving, and I feel like most people have Disney Plus, so you can check it out. I'm sure every streaming service is doing that whole, here's a folder of like yeah. Latin X things right now, so mm-hmm. they'll be showing you some stuff for sure. So... This yeah. is the month to check it. I mean, every month is the month to check it out, but like this is the month to be like super intentional about it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, one of my favorite things is going to like supporting local artists and artisans, mm-hmm. writers. Um, there's a new graphic novel out called Frontera that is really good by um, Julio Anta and Jacoby Salcedo, which I absolutely love. There's a book called Lolo Woods. I'm, I've been really into graphic novels lately, so that's uh, a big part of what I'm recommending. But um, yeah, check out the books because like, like your local library probably has a display as well and you can pick mm-hmm. out some titles to read. So yeah. Ooh, Blue Beetle. You saw that. You liked that. Yeah. We haven't yep. talked about it, but. Yeah, definitely recommend that. That's th- So that's what you got for this month. You can go see it this month <laughs> in honor. I don't even know if it's in theaters anymore, but. <laughs> no. I mean, I've been out of the loop in theater stuff. It went stuff. in and out really quickly because I think they were like, oh, you didn't make as much as Barbie? Sorry. What you a know. high bar. Like, that's right? crazy. I don't know if that's the, the Do you phrasing. you know what made but. as much as Barbie? Well, not as much, but like a lot and sucked. Oppenheimer. Yeah. I've been here. I have not seen it myself because I've heard it from so many people that it was terrible. And I'm like, I'm not wasting three hours <laughs> of my life. No, don't. Don't. Uh, yeah, I was all set with it. I, and other ways I might be celebrating is uh, with my students. We have a lot of events at Baruch this month. Oh, nice. Um, I just went to a uh, a cafecito, which there's this organization at Baruch that like is kind of an umbrella for a lot of the different clubs. Like we have an El Salvadorian club. We have uh, like a Dominican club, Mexican club, and all the students got together and they invited a lot of professors and so they had, they did like two professors set at each table and then they had the students move around and sit at those tables for like 10 minutes and chat with the professors and chat with each other as students and like, so like speed dating. 
kind of, but like in a group, <laughs> like group Network speed, speed dating. dating. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was really cool. And um, there's a play I'm going to see next week with my department, Candela, and um, that's on the Lower East Side. So, mm-hmm. you know. There's lots of things. I mean, obviously in New York, we have uh, a larger access to this, but you were mentioning a lot of museums and stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Museo del Barrio and all Mm -hmm. of that. But like you were talking about, like at the very least, whatever streaming service you have is definitely like jumping on the monthly bandwagon and and we'll give you a list of films. Um, So check it out and let us know what you what you do, how you celebrate. I think we should celebrate by talking about our woman of the hour. We should. Today we'll be discussing Sir Juana Inez de la Cruz, from her rebellious childhood to her time in the royal court and to her life as a nun. Then we'll learn how she became known as the Tenth Muse and how it affected her personal and professional life, including connections to other important figures in Mexico at the time. Later we'll dig into some rumors about her and how her writings made her enemy number one in the eyes of the church. Lastly, we'll talk about her impact on literature, music, film, theater, and more. Juana de Esbaje y Ramirez de Santillana was born November 12, 1648. She lived in New Spain, now Mexico, during the colonial period and was a writer, a philosopher, a composer, and a poet. She served as a lady-in-waiting for a period of time and later went on to become a Hieronymite nun. Now, you're like, okay, what's a Hieronymite nun? Well, it's specifically the type of church that she was involved in, and she actually picked it because it was less strict than some of the other churches, and she was able to like spend time reading and writing and stuff that she wouldn't have been able to do depending on the other church. I like that. She was like, I want to nun it up, but like, let's relax a bit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she was born in San Miguel, La Pampa, near Mexico City. Her parents are both of Spanish ancestry, but since she was born in Mexico, she was considered a Criola. No? Yeah. Uh, Criolla, but that's the Oh, is Spanish. it like Creole? Um, it's kind of like Creole, but um, not exactly. So in Spanish, the word is used to represent someone who was born in Latin America or specifically mm-hmm. in this case in Mexico, uh, but their parents were Spanish. But Creole, like when we think it's about like Louisiana and race. French, yeah. is more of a mixed race thing. Yes. I guess this is like mixed heritage. So like I I feel like it kind of came from the same place, but it's not the same. I mean, I'm not a language scientist, but it kind of feels like vibes. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there are, they probably come from similar root words, but one was more derived from French and mm-hmm. the other Spanish, so I'm guessing that's sort of where the okay the differences come in. Anyway. So to recap, this indicates that she was not indigenous or African, but also set her it set her privilege just slightly below Spanish born people living in Mexico. Yeah, it was this weird whole thing where like if you were born in Spain and you moved to Mexico, you had the highest ranking. But if your parents were Spanish and you were born in Mexico, then you were lower ranked in this. In like the country that you like you're Mm -hmm. currently. That's. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. That's weird. (laughs) And there's a whole like this whole ridiculous multi-tiered system and it's disgusting. But yeah. Uh, One thing about Sor Juana, though, she was the illegitimate child of Don Pedro Manuel de Esbaje. He was a Spanish officer. And Doña Isabel Ramirez de Santillana, who was a wealthy Criolla woman. So her mom came from money. Her dad came from the military. But they weren't married. So illegitimate, obviously. They were both named Don. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Kinda. I, I love that you brought that up. Okay, I'm gonna do my little. Oh, does side Don mean Miss or Mister? Don is like Sir, and Donya oh. is like Ma'am or Lady. Yes, I love that you brought so that up. Though much because- learning. No, I sound <laughs> stupid. Now. No, you don't. You don't because listen. Every semester, I would teach Don Quixote, and the students would be like, "Yeah, so Don went on his adventures." With his, his name friends. is not. Don. <laughs> his name is not Don. <laughs> My, my mind is bull. What? So what's his, is Quixote his first name or his last Quixote, name? Well, Quixote is, okay, this is weird, but Quixote is his last name, but it's also a name that he kind of made up because his name was Alonso Quijano. 
Okay. And he wanted to be a knight, so he took the title Don. So he was like Sir Quixote, basically. What is anything? <laughs> what is life? What is literature? I feel bamboozled. Okay. <clears throat> wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> back to Sarana, not my like existential crisis right now. <laughs> uh, let me just, I don't know. We might talk about it later, but I'll just say now sore means like sister, like none. Not, that's also not her name. It's her title. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Do this by yourself. I can't. <laughs> okay. So, well, as far as records show, her biological father was not in her life. Um, I'm assuming being in the military, he was off wherever. Uh, but her maternal grandfather was a pretty rich man. And Juana, her mother, and her sisters all lived in his, like, estate with him. Oh. So when she was young, she would often be found hiding out in the chapel reading her grandfather's books. This was forbidden for girls to do at the time, hence all the hiding. The story goes that by the time she was three, she knew how to read and write in Latin. And by the time she was five, she could do math. When she was eight, she wrote a poem about the Eucharist, those tiny little Jesus crackers, or more so like the sacrament about eating them. Uh-huh. By the time she was a teenager, she had mastered Greek logic and was teaching Latin to young children. Oh, and she also picked up a, na- a native language called Nahuatl. She used that to write short poems and stories. Yeah, she is pretty, pretty well-rounded, pretty well-versed in like no, all that's of insane. these things. Like she was reading and writing Latin at like what at three? When do kids start reading regular like their own native language? Five, six? Like that's yeah, I insane. Like if she was in modern times, she would probably. I know she'd get like a Nobel Peace Prize or she'd be like a doctor somewhere. Like this is really like intense learning. Like she's a genius. Yeah. She was labeled one of two savants of that area of Mexico at that time. And and we can understand why, right? Yeah. (laughs) When she turned 16, she was sent to live in Mexico City. She really wanted to continue her education, but it wasn't something young women were allowed to do. She actually even asked her mom if she could disguise herself as a boy so she could go to the university. And like her mom's like, no, no, that's not happening. (laughs) And I mean, part of it is probably just the norms of the time. But, you know, we also have to think about safety. Oh, absolutely. So she couldn't get a formal education, but she wasn't about to let that stop her. So she continued her studies privately. She was living in Mexico City because of her family's influential position. Because of them, she earned a spot as a lady-in-waiting in in the the viceroy's court. Just a side note for anyone who's not sure what a viceroy is. So basically, it's a guy who's appointed to be the king, but like a vice king to a specific region. It's kind of like a governor? Kind of, yeah, but like with a royal title instead of elected. Mm, His job was to do the bidding of the king and the colony that he was assigned to. So Sor Juana's viceroy was Don Antonio Sebastián de Toledo. And probably through his wife, uh, he actually learned how smart Juana was because she was really there to serve her. So the viceroy decided to test her. And this, there's a video on YouTube. Y'all should go check it out. It's only like a five-minute video, but they, sh- they, they show this scene. Um, and it also appears in a full-length movie about her life. Anyway... He basically invites a bunch of theologians, jurists, philosophers, poets, all to this room, to this meeting. And I don't know if they're sitting around a table or how it's formatted, but they're basically all just like quizzing her. They're like, oh, I'm an expert in this. So I'm going to ask you the hardest question I know about this subject. And I'm an expert. in, And so they're all an expert in one thing. Mm -hmm. And she answered all their questions. I... I just love it. I love it so much because she's like, "Mm, you think you know this one thing? Well, I know all of your things, right? (laughs) I rule this room. (laughs) Right? (laughs) It kind of reminds me of like those dude bros who like when they hear that a woman likes sports, they Mm -hmm. end up like quizzing her on all the like minute historical details of specific players and specific years and this sort of like, oh, yeah, you're a fan. Prove it kind of moment. Like, oh, you like football? Name all the players that were born on June 8th. Oh, exactly. I guess you don't really like football. Yeah. No, those guys are the fucking worst. And they can do it on any topic. And it's annoying. Exactly. And this is, that's like totally what this is giving here. Um, you know, in this case, the vice Viceroy was kind of like showing her off. Like, look at what a genius lady-in-waiting we have. Everybody, almost like a, a, a circus actor, party yeah. trick. Yeah. 
but like, still. Uh, she's so smart. Look how adorable this is. <laughs> God. <laughs> Men. So, so Anna so passed this dude's little test, and she astonished everyone with her knowledge. Now she's known around town for being basically a genius. She's famous, and we absolutely love it. So I wonder if people are just, like, throwing her questions as she, like, walks around town. Like, hey, smart girl, what's 12 times 12, you know? <laughs> and they get, like, real hyped up when she, like, gets the answer right. That would be yeah. fun. She's just, yeah. like, going to get bread, and they're just like... I would What's get so biology? tired of it, though. I'd be like, oh, I'm not like, yeah, yeah because I don't again, know. I feel like if she likes to learn, she might be like, boom. Or she could just like tell them anything. She's the smartest person in this town. That's true. Like, is, <laughs> they <laughs> won't know if she's right. Exactly. Or wrong. <laughs> They're just going to smile and nod and be like, Sarwana, she's a genius. So she became admired around court and received several proposals of marriage, which she turned on all of them. Whether it was a result of these proposals or she just wanted to be left alone to enjoy her books, Juana entered the Monastery of St. Joseph's in 1667. She lived among the nuns for a few months but found them to be too strict for her liking. So in 1669, she tried again. This time she entered the Monastery of the Hieronymite nuns, like we mentioned before. So they had more relaxed rules and she felt more comfortable here. And this is when she changed her name to what we know her as today, right? Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. According to Sor Juana herself, she became a nun so that she could study on her own terms and because she wanted, quote, to have no fixed occupation which might curtail my freedom to study, a.k.a. being a wife. Mm -hmm. Perhaps. I mean, she doesn't say it, but she's basically saying it. She's like, mm. what, what fixed occupation would she have otherwise? wife mother nothing then yeah like that's it homemaker like baker i don't know i don't even <laughs> think like the women were allowed to do that well and she was high class too so she wouldn't yeah have you're right been in that category she stayed cloistered at the coven of Santa Paula of the Hieronyme in Mexico City from 1669 until her death in 1695 this is where she studied wrote and collected a large quantity of books but just because she was a nun, it didn't mean that she didn't have friends or benefactors. One friend was... <laughs> uh, the trigger warning should have been my <laughs> terrible pronunciation of these very Spanish names. Um, Don Carlos de Sequenza y Gongora. He was very close to hers, and he was a fellow smarty pants. So they were basically just genius besties. He once said, There is no pen that can rise to the eminence that hers overtops. The fame of Serwana Inez de la Cruz will only end with the world. So far, he's not wrong. They were such good friends that he even delivered the eulogy at her funeral. So the viceroy and vice reina, uh, I think that's how you say it in English, because these are words I learned in Spanish. And I was like, oh, this is how they translate. But like, mm -hmm. we don't have vice, I don't, vice reina, vice reign. I don't know how you say it. Anyway. The vices. Yeah. <laughs> they became her patrons. Uh, so... Now, these are not the same ones that she had served before, but new ones. So they'd been like, I don't know, ousted, or maybe they decided they wanted to go beheaded. back home or whatever. Maybe. I don't think they were beheaded, beheaded. but maybe. <laughs> we did our uh, recover where they were killing everybody. Henry. Uh, yeah. The yeah. eighth. Just murking people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, these are the new, the new Viceroy and Vice Reina. And their names are Tomás de la Serna and María Luisa Manrique de Lara y Gonzaga. Got to have like 800 names. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, I guess to differentiate you from other people, because how many María Luisas do you think there were? Well, I think it's also to show your status, because the farther oh. back you can show these fancy last names, the more prestige you have. I would like the opposite. The shorter your name is, the cooler you are. Congratulations. <laughs> You've won. So this couple supported her financially and helped to get her writings published in Spain. Maria Luisa and Sarwana were especially close, and Sarwana even dedicated some of her poems to her friend. There definitely are some speculations about this friendship, but we will get back to that later. Sarwana was a contributor to both early Spanish literature as well as to the broader literature of the Spanish Golden Age. This is kind of like, so because of her social status, she could, the things that she wrote like they worked in Spain, but they also worked in Mexico. She wrote poetry and prose dealing with topics as wide ranging as love, environmentalism, feminism, although they didn't have those specific terms at the time um, and religion. Well, they had love, but environmentalism. 
<laughs> and feminism were not terms at that time. Her criticism of misogyny and the hypocrisy of men led to her condemnation by the Bishop of Puebla, and in 1694, she was forced to sell her collection of books. She then focused all of her attention to charity for the poor. Sadly, she died in 1695 after catching the plague while caring for others who were sick. How did the world see Sor Juana? Let's start out with the fact that some of her peers and admirers referred to her as the 10th muse. So this was like, I was like, what is this? I got I to look this up. So the 10th muse is a person, or I guess in some cases a thing, that is considered to be a source of inspiration comparable to one of the mythological muses. Mm-hmm. It was first recorded in one of Shakespeare's sonnets, um, and Sor Juana was not the only person to be called the 10th muse, as some refer to Sappho by that name as well, and she was a Greek poet. I believe she's one of the few female Greek poets that we still have like written works by. In Sor Juana's case, though, basically it was her contributions to the literature of the Spanish Golden Age that earned her this nickname. But others called her the Phoenix of America, and this was a reference to the idea that she was a flame that rose from the ashes of religious authoritarianism. Sawana had plenty of close friendships throughout her life, though. These friends included members of the political and cultural elite, but not everyone was an admirer. In November of 1690, the Bishop of Puebla, Manuel Fernandez de Santa Cruz published a critique that Serwana had written without her permission. Mm-hmm. Fraudulent. Sue him. I guess it's like taking sue. someone's private diary almost and like publishing that. Was it though? Or well, was I mean, it, it wasn't. Like, how did he get it then? I mean, it wasn't a diary, but it was like something she had probably written and like left on her desk. Like, I'm going to get these oh. thoughts out and. Or maybe she had shared it, but it wasn't with the intent of publishing it or hmm. I don't know. But somehow he got a hold of it. That's that's the uh, the sneakier part. How did you get this document? How did you get this critique? So what was she critiquing? So it was a 40 year old sermon by a Portuguese Jesuit preacher. He interpreted her Carta Antenagoria as a challenge to the hierarchy or the rank structure of the religious authority. Along with the unauthorized publication of her writing, he also published his own letter directed towards her saying that she should focus on religious studies instead of secular studies. So basically, (laughs) yeah, basically he published his criticisms to use them against the priest Mm -hmm. because he actually agreed with what Sor Juana had written. But... But not her right to say it. Yeah, because he thought that as a woman, she should spend more time focused on prayer and give up her writing. In the letter, he explained that women should be silent and that Serwana's work was a waste of time. Vomit. (laughs) He said that instead of publishing works that could be considered controversial, she should use her talents for spiritual matters. In his mind, this was doubly important because she had devoted her life to God by becoming a nun. Yeah, and uh, that's not even the best part, right? So he didn't even publish it under his own name. He used the pseudonym Sor Filotea de la Cruz, in essence, pretending to be a nun. Right? So modern example, right? It's giving this, uh, like, man posts something on the internet with an intro that says, like, as a woman, and then, like, clearly goes on to say something that, like, a woman would never say. And you're just like, like hello, my fellow woman. And it's really... (laughs) There was some congressman that I cannot remember the name of now that like was using like a, a burner Twitter account as like a black person being like as an African-American. Yes. <laughs> he forgot yes. to like change it. So it was his white face being like as an African-American. They're like, wow, you got caught real quickly. But like, ugh, it's so gross that like things don't change. Like there's right. this guy like <laughs> he, thought that, he thought the need to call her out, even though he agreed with her. But did agree with her saying what she had to say, but didn't feel strongly enough to call her out as his own self. Right. Yeah. Like, like, or was it like, oh, this will. No, because if women's opinions don't matter in this world, why would you need to use a pseudonym of like a a female nun? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I don't know. I think it was the idea that maybe it was like, oh, I am your peer as a fellow nun. Oh. (laughs) Still no. It's still Still, no. Yeah. But, uh. Okay, so in response to Manuel Fernandez de la Cruz and other critics, uh, men, um, she wrote La Respuesta, or The Answer. 
In this, she defended a woman's right to study. She advocated for a woman's right to serve as an intellectual authority, not just through writing, but specifically through the publication of her writing. Many people, again, men, believe that it was unnatural for a woman to pursue these interests. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, you like reading and having thoughts about stuff? Gross. It's unnatural. Why? Mm-hmm. Because you have boobs? Like that's uh, mm, it's so stupid. It makes no sense to me. It makes literally no sense to me. And it's been it's been this way forever. Mm-hmm. And it's shitty and terrible. Sirwana did acknowledge the fact that while she did try to focus on religion instead of other studies, she could not shake the desire to learn. She also wrote about all of the ways in which she could learn from the world around her and how understanding the sciences and philosophy would help her in her relationships with God. It would help her better understand him and see the beauty in his work. She argued that women, especially older women, should hold positions of power and authority because then women could educate other women. And she argued this would have the added bonus of avoiding potentially dangerous situations involving male teachers and young female students. Hmm. There's something else that's not new. That part. (laughs) This so-called radical position made her a controversial figure. She once echoed the thoughts of poet St. Teresa of Avila, stating, one can perfectly well philosophize while cooking supper. This was obviously an extremely scandalous statement. The Archbishop of Mexico and other high-ranking officials of the church condemned the statement as disobedience and disrespect towards the church. Oh, and in addition to this opposition, she was repeatedly criticized for believing that her writing could be as helpful as community work. She was like, oh... I can write. That's how I can help. That's how I can give back. No, no, no. But like, it seems like she was doing both, right? Like you could write about all the religious things you want, but then she was also like going to help the poor and stuff. So like, I don't understand why one thing needed to be better than the other or like instead of the other. Like she was multitasking and winning and the church was like, could you do that more quietly? You're a woman. Mm -hmm. We don't like it. Yeah. By 1693, she seemed to have stopped writing so that she didn't risk officially being censored. She even signed a document in 1694 stating that she agreed to undergo penance for her devotion to letters. I hate this. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Se- we'll come back to this in that next section. But it's important to note here as a consequence of the ways in which men perceived her work. Yeah, men. <sighs> So Sor Juana was said to have sold her books around this time. And that's what we we mentioned earlier. Uh, She had a huge library, right? There were over 4,000 volumes. She also sold her musical instruments and scientific tools as well. Now, there are some conflicting reports that say she didn't actually sell her books, but instead it was her defiance toward the church that led to the confiscation of these items. And it's just, it's really uncertain because apparently, again, just like these other men, the bishop agreed with the contents of her letters. He just wasn't a fan of the fact that she was a woman saying these things. It just seems so hypocritical and like embarrassing. Right. To be like, you're right. But because of like what's between your legs, I can't agree with you. Like, yeah, there's no mm-hmm. mind of your own at all. Like, it seems absolutely insane to me. Yeah. It's amazing that her work stayed credited to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and right, and some dude didn't just go like, "Oh, I'm just gonna change your name because this does stuff does make sense," but it make more sense coming from a man. Like you're right. I wonder how many things maybe someone took. I mean, she has a lot of stuff credited to her, but maybe there are things that like just you know went missing from her desk that somebody else took, right? And put their name on. I wouldn't be surprised. No, me either. So, not shocking to anyone, in colonial Mexico, the patriarchy was and still is, honestly, the norm. Men were viewed as superior and women were expected to maintain domestic roles. Sawana would never settle for this. She challenged the gender roles of her time through her writing, all while facing gender discrimination throughout her lifetime. Yeah, it like I still just keep going back to when she was brought to this room full of men and challenged to answer all the questions, but got them all the she got them all right, but then she was still treated like a novelty yeah. or less than. They're probably like, Oh, it's so cute. <laughs> I mean, it kind of so was that you know stuff, right? Like, what, what are you going to do with that? Just be a little puppet for us. I don't know. Anyway, uh, the Catholic Church pushed back on Sor Juana. They feared her influence on other women. They didn't want other women to follow in her footsteps, basically. I mean, we can't have women knowing things and disrupting the church's social hierarchy now, can we? 
religion was super important to Sarwana, but it still shows courage that she risked her relationship with the church by challenging them about a woman's right to learn. She's honestly probably one of the strongest examples of the ways in which religious women had to negotiate their relationship between the church and learning things. So the church was always working to silence women's voices, and this is just proof. Over time, Sarwana faded from the conversation, but her work regained popularity in the 20th century with interest in academic scholars and feminist movement of the time. One such scholar was Octavio Paz, who wrote Sarwana or The Traps of Faith. It became one of the most famous biographies about her. Well, she could not have been considered a feminist since the word did not exist in her lifetime. Fun fact, it was introduced in the 1830s by a French philosopher. Many scholars today consider her a proto-feminist. She's also the subject of discourse on themes such as colonialism, education rights, women's religious authority, and writing as a means of feminist advocacy. And as a woman in religion, Sor Juana has become associated with the Virgin of Guadalupe, which is a religious symbol of Mexican identity. But she's also been connected to Aztec goddesses as well. So she's amazing. Why not both? <laughs> Why not both? <laughs> Sawana's personal life and social life was marked by tension between her status as a nun and the role she previously played in the, as a lady-in-waiting. Her writing seems to reflect some of the struggles she had herself with re reconciling these two phases of her life. But the truth was that she had no interest in being married, and that would have been her life as a lady-in-waiting. So now, I have a question, because it just, like, knowledge jarred out of my head. Does a lady-in-waiting mean, like, a lady waiting to get married? Like, I know that a lady-in-waiting is, like, someone who waits on the queen or who's ever in power, but is there a double meaning to this? I, You know what? I'm not 100% sure, but I feel like there is. Like, that... Because the, the idea that she would be at court and then all mm -hmm. like the the fancy men would be there too and they yeah. would like pair them up and be like okay now and you're yet those are usually the people who got married off first like if you were a lady in waiting like i'm thinking about like marie antoinette like mm -hmm. her people like got married off like when she was a lady in waiting like it was like oh you met like all you met the people in the same circle that you would be in and sometimes like the king would just marry you off to one of them. So yeah, I wonder I, if it had like a double meaning. I mean, I would think so, but I didn't actually double check that. I'm going to say it does. I'm okay. going to say that that means I fully support things. that. <laughs> Rubber stamp it. It is true. Says by me. Okay. So like Sarwana becoming a nun was like taking herself off the market. It was basically her only option to avoid marriage and be free to continue her studies without being interrupted. If she had any other options, she might have taken them, but it was either become a nun and get time to study or marry a man and not. Yeah. She herself described it as the least unsuitable and the most honorable way of life. <laughs> so here I want to take a little sidebar. Uh, as you would say, off topic, on topic. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a thing that I say a lot? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, but I want to address the rumors that Sor Juana was a lesbian. So that is something that has gone around in academic circles uh, on and off over the years. And the fact is, we don't know. Right. It's fantastic headcanon. Sure. And there's been some fiction written about it. And there have been scholars who've studied like her love poems that were dedicated to the vice reina. Uh, but again, we can't say for certain. Like, I know it's not uncommon for women who are attracted to women to join the church. But in Sor Juana's case, it's a little less clear because everything we know about her for a fact confirms that she made her choice to become a nun as a way to continue learning. Like that was her open reason. So maybe she was a lesbian. Maybe she wasn't. Maybe she like she didn't want to get married. Mm -hmm. But did she I not want to get married because this reason? Right. Exactly. That's yeah. what I'm saying. So there's no there's no hard evidence on that. But like. If you want that to be your headcanon, go for it. I, I fully support it. Because I wonder if she would have found, if it was even possible at all for her to find a, a suitor who would have been like, hey, you're hella smart and I think that's awesome. Let's get married and we can both like write about stuff. Like it's not uncommon. Like we've covered other people who like, other women who like people hated the fact that they wrote, but then they found some dude and was like, Hey, let's write stuff together. Yeah. So I don't think that it's super uncommon. I wonder if she just didn't feel like putting forth the effort, but like, or was she a I, lesbian? Right. I and lean towards lesbian. Cause it's like, also let me just like avoid dudes in general. Like this way I don't have to even worry about it. Exactly. At all. Exactly. Yeah. Cause 
because even the other like super smart guy, the the Sequence Gongara guy, like mm-hmm. maybe they could have hooked up or something, but yeah, nah, because they were really good friends, mm-hmm. or maybe she was like asexual. Who knows? Maybe she was. She just like didn't have time for dudes, which like I appreciate. No like, matter respect. what she, yeah, whatever it, it laid down to, she was like, you know what, I don't have time for men. Thank you. Give me this book. And that actually segues quite nicely into one of her works of writing that I want to talk about. Um, it's called Hombres Necios, and uh, it translates to Foolish Men. So this is a poem written by Sor Juana in the 1680s. It's among the first proto-feminist writings in the Americas, and it explores the double standards that men put on women. It also accuses men of trying to diminish a woman's honor. As we mentioned before, Mexico society at this time was heavily patriarchal, but Serwana managed to publish this work. It would later be an example used in the backlash she received from the church. Clearly, she wasn't wrong. Okay, so I want to share a few stanzas from the poem. They're not... Not consecutive stanzas, but they are in the order that they appear. And so I'm just curious, Kim, what what it might make you think of in the world today. Okay, so here's a few of them. What fools you men who so unfairly claim that women must bear all the guilt for that which you're to blame. When uncontrolled desire makes you seek what is debased, you tempt a woman into sin, then want her to be chaste. And it goes on later. Favor and derision. You are too close akin. You whine if she rejects you and mock her if you win. With you she can do no right, for such is women's curse. If she spurns you, she's ungrateful. If she succumbs, she's even worse. Your hypocrisy is so great, it's practically an art. The one who spurns you, you call cruel, while the other is a tart. And then again, goes on to say, and who has done the greater wrong if wrongfulness there's been? She who sins for money or he who pays for sin? So it low-key reminds me of America for our speech and Barbie. Yes. But also, yes. Oh, yes. But it also reminds me of like dude bros and how horrible dating was. Mm -hmm. Um, So glad to be out of that. Uh, Lastly, the patriarchy and how strong its hold is because like, why is this still happening? (laughs) Right. All of those things. Right. I mean, you yeah. walk down the street and they're like, hey, you know, you're, you know, cat calling like, oh, you're so hot. You're <laughs> so like, what? I'm like, I don't know. I can't even make up. I can't. It hurts I'm my like, soul. When's the last time you've been cat called? Is that what they're doing? Is that what they're doing in like Park Slope? Hey, <laughs> listen, I feel like there comes a point and, and it's luck of the draw. Right. Because mm-hmm. obviously men will cat call whoever they yeah. feel like at the moment there's no there's no one thing that helps you escape it um but i do feel like recently i have been lucky to not have too much of that but at the same time they'll cat call you and be like hey hottie you know whatever this and that you know and then you ignore them and they're like oh what are you a, a prude up, a bitch just stuck up yeah, you know like always. oh you're actually ugly anyway and it's like yeah okay right it's all that of that is- <laughs> That was like a lot of my uh, experience on dating apps. Mm. Like someone would message me and I'd be like, oh, you know, not interested. Like for whatever reason, like nothing in your profile, like for whatever reason. But I was always polite about it. I'd be like, well, you're fed anyway. And it's like, cool. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty clear about that. So like, I don't understand why. Right. The minute why, it doesn't work in their pivot. favor, they yeah. turn the tables. But it's, I love that you brought up the Barbie movie. I love that yeah. that. Like, yeah, what was her character's name? Gloria, I think. Yeah. But America Ferreira's character. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that whole speech she made, like, that, I mean, that, I, I need to go like find her exact words and kind of do a beat by beat with this poem because. Oh, yeah, it's very, it's very similar. And I'm sure you can because I remember days after that movie came out, there were just like whole posts on like Instagram. And I was like, that would be like, um, it, if I were still doing it, a why do we read this episode? Like, it's right there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Should bring it back just for this. Oh, one episode only. <laughs> anyway. So clearly, Serwana was really good at using her writing to challenge those who believed that a woman's intellectual abilities had no relevance. In this poem, Sorjuana emphasizes male irrationality by focusing on the ways in which men harm women. She argues that men are the root cause for the mistakes blamed on women and that they create problems for women in order to avoid taking responsibility for their own mistakes. 
Yeah, we all knew. (laughs) (laughs) Basically. So a scholar, Erin Elizabeth, argues that foolish men employs the double standard used on men use on women that leave women in situations that they just can't win. She explains how Sirwana used the broke literary style of her time to get this message across. All right, so let's talk about her theater for a minute, right? Because poetry wasn't the only place that Sor Juana challenged the relationship between genders. She also wove it into her plays. Sor Juana recognized the negative views of women that were common in the theater of that time, so the ways in which female characters were written in plays to begin with. These were views that upheld male superiority at the expense of women, and she took these norms and reappropriated them to question the ways in which a male-dominated patriarchal society treated women. So three of her plays, The Second Celestina, The Trials of a Noble House, and Love is Indeed a Labyrinth, were written to be performed for courtly celebrations, but still wove some of this stuff into them. So probably one of her most well-known plays is a religious play called The Divine Narcissus, which is based in part on the Greek myth of Echo. Echo? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Echo and Narcissus. Narciss- Narcissus. So is it the divine narcissus? I I say narcissus, but I don't Narciss- I, I, I I don't know. That's I'm one of those of like words. I'm thinking of Xena that I feel like they said narcissus, but I don't know. The characters in this play are all symbolic. Narcissus represents Christ, Echo represents evil, and human nature appears as a woman searching for her lover. Her lover's narcissus. It's not an action-packed play or anything, but it is lyrically beautiful and creatively blends the narcissus story with the Christ story. The Divine Narcissus has a sort of prologue play called the Loa. This is common at the time, and this particular Loa centers on the interaction between two indigenous people, America and Occident, and two Spanish people, religion and zeal. The characters exchange their religious preferences and conclude that there are more similarities more similarities between the two than they initially thought. Yeah, it's a really cool like mini play that kind of gets this idea of like, oh, rather than like kill people who don't want to convert to our religion we like talk about the parallels between their religion and ours and that's a a gentler way of converting them to our religion it's still mm-hmm. about conversion and forced religion but she was a nun so <laughs> <laughs> other writings by sor juana include first dream which is a long philosophical and descriptive poem and inundacion castalida which is a collection of love poetry In fact, many of her poems dealt with the subject of love and sensuality. Again, something used against her later on when the church officials were criticizing her time spent writing. They were like, oh, your writing is too sexy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For the church. How dare you? Even if some of it was written before she entered the church. Mm hmm. Well, that doesn't matter. Your whole life is under the microscope. Yep. Yep. Always. Sor Juana was basically a math scientist, too. I mean, besides poetry and philosophy, she was really into the sciences, into math, into music. Uh, The music part tied in with her poetry, but she also devoted some of her time to the theory of instrumental tuning. Like, she actually loved music so much that she wrote a treatise on it that sought to simplify musical notation. Uh, Unfortunately, this treatise has been lost. Um, Probably some man destroyed it. I don't know. Um, It could have been a flood. It could have been whatever, but probably some man. Probably some man. But there's like written records that she wrote it. Like there's people reference it. So that's how we know it existed. She wrote not only in Spanish, but also on occasion in Nahuatl, the indigenous language of the region. In her Viancico uh, 224, (laughs) I was like... My head wanted to do that number in in Spanish because the first word (laughs) was in Spanish, but Viancico 224, a poem set to music, she writes about the Virgin of Guadalupe and Sihuacoatl, an indigenous goddess. It's unclear whether she prioritizes one over the other in this poem or if her focus is on harmonizing the two. But like, given what she did with the Loa, um, our guess would be the second one, you know, that she was actually trying to, to... harmonize the two the last piece of writing we want to address is the letter of penance that we mentioned earlier in the episode as we said she signed this document in 1694 saying that she would give up her studies rather than be censured but if we look at her writing style over the years and compare it to this document it is quite different rather than using the natural lyricism she's known for this piece which she signed i the worst of all has more than a formulaic church tone to it yeah Now, I'm not saying she was coerced or given a document to sign that she herself did not write, but I'm not not saying that either. Mm Mm-hmm. It seems suspicious. 
let's talk about her impact on the world. So despite the unfortunate ending of Cruz's life and career, her story and accomplishments have lived on. As we mentioned, during the 20th century, Serwana was recognized as the first published feminist of the New World due to the rising interest in feminism. She became a role model to modern women. She's also been recognized as colonial Latin America's first great poet and the last great poet of the Spanish Broke. Well, she had over 100 unpublished literary works, only a few of these writings have survived. According to scholar Octavio Paz, her writings were saved by the Vice Reina. They have been combined into a volume that is known as The Complete Works. Now, I have this book in Spanish, but it is really, really tough for me to read because it's old Spanish. So I would love to snag a copy in English because her stuff is amazing. But like, if you don't know old Spanish, <laughs> it's very difficult. Teresa A. Uger argues that Sor Juana was the first woman bibliophile in the New World. She goes on to argue that Sor Juana's focus on gender and class equality, in addition to her advocacy for preserving indigenous traditions, was key to the perspectives held in the 17th century. Yugar saw Sor Juana as someone who expressed concern over the consequences of Spanish capitalism and ideas that would, in the modern world, be associated with decolonization and saving the earth. She was like a little Greta Thunberg or something. <laughs> she actually, it's like super low-key. She reminds me of Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Nice. Like everybody in her town was dumb and she was smarter than all of them. And they all wanted to marry her. And she was like, ugh, I don't want to get married. I just want to read my books. I'm going to go live with a beast and some talking furniture so I can read my books. They all respected her up there. So I'm just like, saying. You're yeah, not wrong. And like, <laughs> the beast was like, hey, I want to read books too. Can you teach me how to read? <laughs> Why didn't he know how to read? I feel like maybe his when he turned into a beast, he lost his ability to read. <laughs> Listen, don't read he it too He didn't lose deeply. his ability to speak English. Like, that. that's weird to me. I mean, he forgot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But what's, what's he been doing that? that whole time? Like, pouting. Why hasn't he been reading those books? He's been pouting men exactly like 90 something <laughs> fucking years instead of reading a goddamn book and like adjusting to your new living situation he bought pants and everything to fit his beast body but he didn't learn how to read wow okay <laughs> that'd be a really funny like out of context thing oh um, man in 1982 margaret sayers peden published the first transcript translations of Sor Serwana's work, A Woman of Genius, the intellectual autobiography of Serwana Inez de la Cruz. She later translated other works into English as well. Since Serwana's works were rediscovered after her death, scholarly translations such as those by Sayer Peden and scholarly interpretations have grown. They're not always in agreement, but there are lots of ideas out there. Octavio Paz, for, for example, a Mexican Nobel Peace Laureate and a scholar, wrote about Serwana in his book, Serwana or the Traps of Faith. He examined her poetry and life in the context of New Spain, focusing on the difficulties women faced at that time. Primarily, his goal was to explain why she decided to become a nun. Because, like, there's got to be a rational reason for this. Sir, mind your business. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of what we do as scholars is intentionally not mind our business. But <laughs> We. All right, scholar Rebecca. <laughs> you are a doctor. Forgive me. Uh, I'm not trying to be fancy. I'm just trying to lay out facts. <laughs> anyway. Fancy facts. Scholar Rachel O'Donnell argues that Sor Juana held a special place in 17th century Mexico between socially acceptable and unacceptable. They examined Sor Juana's intersectionality through the influence of religion, race, and social norms. Luis Felipe Fabre, another Mexican writer and scholar, is critical of other scholars, though. He ridicules them, referring to them as Sor Juanistas, people who idolize Sor Juana. He criticizes those who label Sor Juana as either a heretic or a lesbian, saying that those types of representations disregard her complexity as a woman. Or does it? Right. Add Why to do, it? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lewis. Like that. Just like people are complex. Like everyone's an onion. Like there's a lot going on, and it makes you that kind of a person because you have all these different layers going on. Like that seems so weird to be like, don't look at those other things. It makes it less. <laughs> it makes it less complex. Like that's. It, I don't like, know. Literally the opposite of less complex, right? Like yeah. adding more things does not make things like does not minimize them. <laughs> Yeah, sir. 
Weird. Okay. <clears throat> Some scholars, such as Nicole Gomez, focus on aspects that traditionally have been left out of the conversation. She argues that Serwana's fusion of the Spanish and Aztec traditions in works like Loa to the divine narcissist aim to raise the status of indigenous religious traditions. And Paz, along with Alicia Gaspar de Alba, have incorporated Serwana into conversations about Mexican identity in general. According to Paz, it's due to the scholarship on Serwana that she has been elevated to a national symbol in Mexico as a, as a woman, writer, and religious authority. And Gaspar de Alba has emphasized Serwana's indigenous identity by inserting her into the Chicana discourse in the U.S., the impact of Sor Juana on contemporary feminism is indisputable. Even just looking at her decision to become a nun can be connected to contemporary feminism. I mean, she refused to marry, and becoming a nun was the only way she could do this while also obtaining a degree of authority and freedom. As we've mentioned, Sor Juana would not be labeled a feminist herself, but rather a proto-feminist, as her ideas and intellectual authority would now be associated with feminism. Teresa Yogar connects... Sor Juana to various feminist advocacy movements of the 21st century, including religious feminism and ecofeminism. And Alicia Gaspar de Alba connects Serwana to the modern lesbianism movement and Chicana movement. She links Serwana to the criticism of compulsory heterosexuality. In 1973, Rosario Castellanos wrote Woman That Knows Latin, a now famous feminist work where she lists examples of pre-20th century feminist women who broke from traditional roles and chose to be themselves. She listed Sir Juana Inez de la Cruz at the top of her list. Through her various writings, it's clear that Serwana wanted her voice to be heard by women suffering in a patriarchal society. As a nun, expressing her radical views caused controversy with the Catholic Church, but she did not back down until the last few years of her life. Her legacy as the pioneering feminist of Latin America remains important in the modern day, and she continues to inspire contemporary feminist movements. If Sor Juana would have lived during the time of feminist movements, it's likely that the end of her career would have been different. Today, Sor Juana is an important figure in Mexico. The San Geronimo Convent where Sawana lived the last 27 years of her life. Today is the University of the Cloisters of Sawana in Mexico City. It was founded in 1979. In 1993, the Sawana Ines Service for Abused Women was established to help women survivors of domestic violence. It was later renamed the Community Overcoming Relationship Abuse, or CORA, and offers community, legal, and family support services to women and children who have faced domestic violence. In 1995, her name was inscribed in gold on the Wall of Honor in the Mexican Congress. Her picture was her picture is on the 200 peso bill and was minted on the 1,000 peso coin that was issued in 1988 and 1992. And the town where she grew up, San Miguel Nepantla, was renamed in her honor, Nepantla de Serwana Inis de la Cruz. I'm sure they loved it becoming so much longer. <laughs> <laughs> So here's a little random bonus fact that I found. It's so absurd, but I love it. So Serwana just stopped eating cheese one day. Why did Serwana stop eating cheese? She resolved to be persevering and disciplined to such an extent that when she was still a young girl, she decided to refrain from eating cheese, given that she happened to hear that it made people rude and it made them behave in foolish ways. So she was like, that's not for me. No cheese. So I was thinking about that and I'm like, okay, how did cheese make people rude? And I'm like, they're probably lactose intolerant and farting. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it was like that string cheese and they were pulling it, being all messy. Yep, yep. Sloppy, sloppy <laughs> cheese. <laughs> so anyway, cheese is for rude people who behave in foolish ways. I, I love agree. it. <laughs> As a lactose intolerant person, y'all cheese eaters are crazy. All right, well, let's wrap up this section by looking at the impact that Sor Juana has had on literature, music, film, and theater. So one example, the Canadian poet and novelist Margaret Atwood, uh, in her 2007 book of poems, The Door, she includes a poem that's called Sor Juana Works in the Garden. Alicia Gaspar de Alba, who we mentioned a few times throughout this episode, wrote a book called Sor Juana's Second Dream. It's a novel that mixes fiction with Sor Juana's own words and some Sor Juana scholarship. Composer Alison Sniffen wrote Hear Me With Your Eyes, Sor Juana on the Nature of Love, which is based on text and poetry by Sor Juana and was commissioned by the Melodia Women's Choir, who premiered the work in New York City. Maria Luisa Bemberg wrote and directed the 1990 film I, the Worst of All, which is based on Octavio Paz's book about Sor Juana's life. And that's one of the ones I mentioned before. You can actually find that whole 
video. Um, I think it's on YouTube or Vimeo or something. It's like on one of those mm. platforms. And even if you just look for the clip where she's like quizzed by these men, it's, it's really quite telling. It's funny. And finally, Tanya Saracho, uh, the, she's a playwright, but she's also the showrunner for Vida. She wrote a play called The Tenth Muse. And it's a fictionalized 18th century drama about women in a convent in colonial Mexico. It was about seven female characters who discovered Sor Juana's writings and the impact that they had on them. All right. So, Kim, final thoughts, takeaways. Um, so my thought is that I literally have never heard of this person before covering her for this episode. And that's kind of what I love about doing this podcast, like learning about women who are basically going through the same thing at like different times, wildly different times. It's like kind of crazy. Serana's intelligence was like a cool party trick. But then when men started to become like threatened and like intimidated by her work, she had to stop. Right. Then they like try to discredit her. Sadly, that still goes on to this day. And I think that Serana is a perfect example because sadly she was stopped. But like, what if she wasn't? Mm -hmm. So today women have much more freedom in, in using their voice to like shut down like injustices and it shouldn't be taken for granted like we should be screaming from the rooftops if you're a writer right from the rooftops like you should do everything you can to have like your voice heard what i love that image of just like someone standing on the rooftops like throwing papers down like read this read this read this <laughs> yeah well for me i i mean i had heard of her and she was one of my requests to put on the list of course um because when I was in my very first grad school class back in New Hampshire, I ended up in a class that was like three hours once a week. And the entire class was centered on Sor Juana. Um, wow. Now, old Spanish is hard. I mentioned that before. And so, like, I didn't fully appreciate her until reading her in English. And now I try to teach my students about her whenever I can get away with it. So we just did the, the Foolish Men poem in class last week talking about colonial Mexico. Um, and as I mentioned, I did a podcast episode about her Loa back when I hosted Why Do We Read This? I did a, a parallel between that Loa and the characters in the movie Inside Out because it's like allegory. Mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, she's just really, she's so cool. Like, <laughs> you know, someone to look up to. It was the 1600s and she was doing her mm -hmm. thing. I mean, yeah, she yeah. got shit for it and she did end up getting shut down. But she did what she could until the church gave her no other choice. I mean, the mm -hmm. church, the patriarchy, the worst. But like Sor Juana, she's someone we can look up to. All right, so let's talk about some references. If you'd like to learn more about Serwana Inez de la Cruz, um, there's The Complete Works by Serwana Inez de la Cruz. I, The Worst of All, a film that's directed by Maria Luisa Bemberg. Oh, you can actually get it on Canopy. That's where that's where I found it, um, which is mm -hmm. a, a film site that is often connected with your library. Like you can use your local library card to access films. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. There's A Life Without and Within, Juana Ramirez slash Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz by Electa Arenal. Sor Juana or The Traps of Faith by Octavio Paz. History's Worst None, a TED-Ed video on YouTube. And Sor Juana, Inside Out and Saint Seiya. Uh, that's the episode of Why Do We Read This? Had to, had to do a little natty plug there. <laughs> <laughs> so let us know what you thought of this episode. Do you have anything to add to the conversation that we might have left out? Or do you have any suggestions for women that we should cover in the future? Follow the podcast on Twitter at Big Rep Pod and Instagram and TikTok at Big Reputations Pod. Send us a message or email us at BigReputationsPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends, your family, your random geniuses you might know. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. Check out our Big Reputations merch. The link is in the show notes as well as in our Linktree link found on all our social media platforms. Be sure to take a picture and tag us when you make a purchase. And remember, we have a Patreon now. Patreon.com slash BigReputationsPod. Or just check out, check out the link in our Linktree. Whether you pledge two or five dollars, you will get a shout out in our episodes. And if you choose the $5 level, you'll have exclusive access to our Little Reputations episodes. These are short mini episodes about amazing women throughout history. Next up, Justine Sigamund. If you don't know who she is, you're about to learn.
Stick around after the episode where we'll share a teaser from that little rep episode. All right, let's wrap things up. Kim, what quote do you have for us this week? So I have one from Mr. Wana. I don't study to know more, but to ignore less. Hell yeah. And as always, believe women. decade, she provided free midwifery services to poor local women. Her clientele of paying customers grew during this time, and it included um, included many merchants and noble families. Right. I love that. So she's like, people who can't pay, I'm still going to deliver your babies. But those of you who can, hook a lady it's a up. Sliding <laughs> scale, like, what's it, the original sliding scale? Be like, can you pay full price? Cool. That's going to help cover the people who can't. Thank you very much. Love it.